Before we get started in our study of God's Word, let's uh, go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study your Word. We thank you for its clarity. We thank you for its perspicacity. We thank you for the way it illuminates our thinking in every area. Scripture says that it is in your light that we see light. And so, Father, it is only as we submit our thinking to the teaching, the illumination, the revelation of your word, that we are able to properly grow as believers and properly understand the creation around us as you have revealed uh, the basis for all thought to us in your word. Thank you for the clarity that you give us regarding salvation and that it is by no one else other than Jesus Christ. Now, Father, as we study these things this evening, we pray that you would challenge us with what we study. Make these things clear to us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. As young men grow up, they often look for role models. They look for leaders. They look for mentors. And they find them in various places. Sometimes they're fortunate enough to find them in their own father. Other times they find them in pastors. They find them in teachers. They find them in professors. Several years ago I sat down I wrote a list of five men who were significant mentors in my life when I was uh, a teenager, when I was in high school and college. And what's interesting is that, that list of five men... Four of the five were pastors. One of the five was an internationally known uh, pro, uh, professor of theology. But on that list of five men, there was one man that stood out as being different. He was different because he was not a pastor. He was not a theologian. He was not. Uh, didn't, he wasn't even a believer. He was a military man. His name was Jim Callahan. And I first met him when I was about to matriculate my first semester at university, at Stephen F. Austin State University in Nacogdoches, and I was going to go into the ROTC program. And I went up there for a summer orientation and went by the Military Science Building and went in, and there was this somewhat uh, nondescript individual who I talked to, and I didn't know much about military protocol, but he was dressed in civilian clothes, We talked about the military science program, the ROTC program, and some of the different things that they had. And he didn't impress me a great deal. He was rather quiet, mild-mannered. He didn't have a the kind of physical presence that you would normally associate with a uh, military man or warrior. But he was uh, someone you just probably wouldn't notice in a crowd. Over the next few months, I came to realize that that's not who this man was. He was a genuine hero. He fought in Korea, fought in Vietnam, several tours in Vietnam. And he became a mentor, a leader, and a hero to dozens of us who went through that military science program. He stamped us with his influence. He was a leader. He was a mentor. He was a, a man who was crazy as a loon. And all of that came together to uh, provide a somewhat remarkable makeup for a, a military leader. And he taught us about leadership. He taught us about what it meant to, what, what it was to be a man, what it what was to assume responsibility. And he was our professor. He was our teacher. And for some of us, as the years went by, he became our friend. 
Over the years since I graduated from college, and I didn't go into the military, and that was a somewhat of a disappointment to him. He had recommended me highly for a scholarship, which I did again, and I went through college on an ROTC scholarship, and it was a great disappointment to him when uh, I did not go into the military. Some years later, he found out I went to seminary, and he called a friend of mine to the side, and he said, Okay, we both know Dean. He's a pastor. There's got to be some money in it somewhere. What's the scam? Figure it out. Well, over the years, we kept in touch. I would go by, go through Nacogdoches every three or four years, and we'd sit outside, and we'd talk, and we'd tell stories and tell lies, and sometimes we'd go out shooting, and uh, together he had a great love for uh, weapons and probably knew everything there was to know about any kind of pistol or rifle or shotgun. And as the years went by, we developed a good friendship This last April, I found out that he entered into the greatest battle of his life as he had been diagnosed with lymphoma. And he was coming down from Nacogdoches every couple of weeks for treatment at MD Anderson. So I I found out he was in town, went down to the hospital to meet him and sat around in the waiting room. And they reviewed some tests and decided to check him in for a couple of days. Well, I had taken my book on spiritual warfare down there just to show him what what I had, uh, what I had done, something that I had done, and then since they decided to keep him in for a few days, I came back the next day and we sat in the room and I brought him a copy of uh, 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 what's his name, Hanson's, uh, Victor Davis Hanson's book, Carnage and Culture, because he was a great military historian. We loved to just sit and talk about battles, and he and I would talk about everything from the Battle of Cannae to the Battle of Gettysburg and uh, Vietnam, and we'd just, he'd just tell war stories, and I was asking him a lot about his experiences in Vietnam and different things. And, and after about 30 minutes, after a second visit up there, he said, Okay, Robbie, tell me why you're a pastor and what it is that's unique about what you believe. And so for the first time in 30 years, first time I had given him the gospel was back when I was a freshman or sophomore in college. And I went through the gospel with him. And we talked about this and we talked about that and we talked about evolution and creation. And we covered the gamut from uh, in philosophy as well as theology. And we talked for three hours. And when it was done, he seemed to say, well, I understand that. I understand the gospel. But, uh, you know, what do I do if I believe all that? I said, well, I'll come back later and we'll talk about that. The next day, uh, I decided I couldn't get down there for a couple of days, and I decided to send my bulldog in there, so I called up Gene Brown. And in just the uh, week or two prior to this, uh, another uh, fellow who was in the ROTC with me back in college had been killed in Iraq as serving in a civilian capacity. And so Gene had at one time served on an A-team with this other, this man who had just been killed. And so they had that, in, that point of contact in common. So Gene went down to the hospital and spent three hours explaining the gospel to Jim Callahan again and going over it in detail. And Gene called me up. He said, well, I don't know if he's a believer, but he really understands grace and he understands the gospel now. Well, he went home a couple of days later to Nacogdoches and had to come back for treatment about two weeks later. We sat around and we talked. And in the course of our conversation, I was going back over my own uh, Christian life 
testimony. And I talked about the fact that, that I'd always wondered if, uh, you know, if Christianity was really intellectually respectable when, when I was in college. You heard so many attacks in the classroom in psychology classes, sociology classes that, that my local church background really hadn't prepared me to specifically handle. And so there were a lot of doubts in my mind, as there are with many folks, if you can really intellectually trust Christianity, or do you have to park your mind and just just believe something, take sort of an existential leap of faith? And Randy Price, who you all know, gave me a copy of Josh McDowell's book, Evidence That Demands a Verdict, when I was a junior in college, and I read that and never looked back. And I just mentioned that as I was going through my testimony, talking with uh, Callahan, and he said, wait a minute, what was the name of that book? And I told him, and he said, can you get me a copy of that? So that afternoon I left the hospital, went down to a Christian bookstore, bought a copy, an updated copy of Evidence That Demands a Verdict, took it back to him the next morning, and then he went home for another couple of weeks before the next treatment. Came back two weeks later, and when he came back, I said, well, did you get a chance to read any of the things that I gave him? I bought him a Bible, and I bought it, took him two or three other uh, books and tracts that explained the gospel. And he read everything, and he had read 250 pages in evidence that demands a verdict. And we sat there, and we talked, and he said, you know, I believe God. I believe in God. I believe God exists. I believe Christ died for my sins. What do I do now? I thought, hmm. I don't have a basic series to give this man. I need to teach a basic series this summer. And so that was the inspiration for the series we just finished, that Foundation for Life, and the one we're beginning this evening, which is Foundation for Living. According to God's timetable, not my timetable, Jim Callahan went to be with the Lord yesterday morning. So he, during the last six or eight weeks, when I got him some tapes, I don't think he ever ever had a chance to listen to any of the basic tapes that we provided. His uh, mind was not as clear the last few weeks. He was tired. The uh, uh, cancer was getting the best of him. But I did get an opportunity several times during the summer to talk to him, and I went up and spent a day with him about a little over a month ago. So that's the foundation for this series. And even though uh, I had other ideas, the Lord had his own timetable. This Saturday I'll be going to uh, Nacogdoches for the, to conduct the memorial service. And that's going to be a challenge because a lot of the men that, uh, that I was in college with are going to be there. So the old rowdy gang from college are going to show up. And I get to give them the gospel. So that's going to be a tremendous uh, time. In fact, what was interesting yesterday was when I was talking on the phone to uh, Callahan's oldest son, who was just a 12-year-old kid when we were in college. And he used to tag along with us on our FTX uh, pro- uh, weekends when we were going out and training in the woods. Uh, I was talking with Phil yesterday, and I said, now, Phil, you have to understand that your father trusted Christ as his Savior. Phil almost just broke down in tears on the phone. He said, you know, Dad was always a skeptic. He was always a cynic. I've just been scared to death that he didn't know Christ as his Savior. And, you know, that's a real challenge to all of us is that we need to make sure that our children hear the gospel and that you tell your parents the gospel. Make sure it's clear. 
Don't let a day go by that you don't tell folks the gospel. And so it's been a great opportunity of ministry to that family, and and that sort of gives you a little insight into why we're going through this series. Well, the question that Jim Callahan asks is an important one that often is not addressed, and that is, okay, now that I'm saved, now that I'm a believer, now that I have eternal life, what do I do? And the Scripture is very clear. In fact, much of the Scripture is addressed not to people to get them saved, but to believers to teach them how to think like God, how to understand God's plan and purposes for their life so that they can go through God's training program in preparation for our future ministry during the Millennial Kingdom as we reign as kings and priests with the Lord Jesus Christ and from there on into eternity. So the first thing we have to ask, the first question we have to address is, okay, if I get saved, what happens if I sin? What do I do? What happens next? And this has been a problem, a perennial problem for pastors and theologians to deal with and for Christians to deal with over the years is, okay, what happens if I sin? Do I lose my salvation? Do I have to go through some kind of penance in order to uh, get right with God? Do I have to uh, say some special kind of prayer or go to the priest or just what do I do to deal with any kind of sin in my life? And the scripture is very clear. Jesus Christ paid the penalty for all of our sin on the cross. Therefore, you cannot commit any sin after salvation that hasn't already been taken care of on the cross. However, when we do sin after salvation, it does have an impact on our ongoing relationship with God. We've studied in the last few weeks about the Uh, nature of salvation, that at salvation we're regenerate, we are born again, we receive new life in Christ, we're adopted into God's family, we become His children, we become sons of God, the Scripture says. As members of the family, we can't be kicked out of the family. But just as you as a child, and you remember this, disobeyed your parents at times and it created a barrier in your relationship with your parents, the same thing happens in our relationship with God. When we sin, there is a breach of our fellowship with God. Because we are indwelt with God the Holy Spirit, and from the instant of salvation, God the Holy Spirit is working to mature us, to sanctify us, the Scripture says, to bring us to spiritual maturity. There's also an impact on that ministry of God the Holy Spirit. The Apostle Paul uses two images to communicate that. He says that we grieve the Spirit and we quench the Spirit. In other words, after we're saved, we're indwelt with the Spirit, or at the instant of salvation, we're filled with, we're indwelt with the Spirit. We're also filled with the Spirit. And the Spirit begins His work in our life. But as soon as we sin, that ministry of the Holy Spirit, His filling ministry, His sanctifying ministry, is squelched. It's shut down. He's still working in other areas, but in terms of producing growth, that is cut off. And the scripture says that there is a recovery process. And there's two passages that indicate that something needs to be done. And these are uh, given in James chapter 1 and in 1 Peter chapter 2. You might turn with me in your Bible, if you have it with you, to James chapter 1. This is always one of my uh, favorite little passages to poke fun at in the 
King James Version because the verbiage just sounds so bombastic and meaningless almost in terms of modern, our modern idiom. The passage reads, Therefore lay aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness. And in the old King James, remember, that was the superfluity of naughtiness. And see, naughty to us just doesn't quite convey what the Greek conveys. Uh, it's a little, in, in, in American idiom, it's a little less, uh, I mean, it, naughty just is a little bit off, you know, it's a little not quite right. But in, in, in English idiom, naughty is, can be quite serious. So part of that just has to do with the language on this side of the pond. The overflow of wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. What we find in this verse, without going into excessive detail on the grammar, is basic dynamics of Christian growth. The command is to receive with uh, meekness or to receive with humility the implanted word. It is an, the command there to receive is an aorist imperative and that indicates that it is a priority and every time you find an aorist tense imperative mood verb in the New Testament, it's indicating a priority that this is something that is of vital significance and needs to be implemented immediately, if not sooner. But we have something interesting going on in this particular verse in terms of the grammatical construction that doesn't come across in the English. It begins with a phrase, it's translated, lay aside, and it looks like that is an imperative as well. Actually, in the Greek, it's an aorist middle participle. It has an imperatival sense to it because of the main command to receive the word. In Greek, this is called a participle of antecedent circumstances. A participle of antecedent circumstances Antecedent means that's which goes before. So this participle always precedes the main verb. And the, the meaning of the grammar is, is that the participle indicates the circumstances or the conditions that must be fulfilled before the main command can be fit, fulfilled. And so the main con- command is to receive the word, which is the basis for our spiritual growth. But before we can take in the word... Something has to happen first, and that is there has to be this laying aside of what the uh, translation says is filthiness and the overflow of wickedness. Well, what does that mean? Well, the word translated filthiness is the Greek word ruparia, which indicates moral corruption. It's just a synonym for sin. The overflow of wickedness actually is the excess which sin is in terms of translation, so we're basically told that we need to do something. We need to lay aside this sin that's in our life. And the verb there for lay aside, apatithemi, is the idea of just removing something. It's the word you would use if a guest came into your house and you said, take your coat off. It's just the removal of a garment, taking something off, removing it, laying it aside, or putting it aside and putting it somewhere else. And I'm reminded of the Old Testament passage When we uh, confess our sins, when God forgives us, He removes our sin as far from us as the East is from the West. And that's the idea here. It is a removal and a separation of sin that is the precondition for being able to take in the Word of God. 
So the command is to lay aside all filthiness and the excess which sin is and receive with humility the implanted word. Now, what, do we, what does it mean by the implanted word? That is the word that we are learning that God the Holy Spirit is going to implant and drive into our soul. It's the word that is able to, as the translation says, to save our souls. Now, this isn't talking about entering into eternal life. The word translated saved is the Greek word sozo, S-O-Z-O. And the Greek word sozo frequently in the New Testament doesn't mean entering into eternal life or, or as we often say, getting saved. It has to do with the end product or the process of our spiritual life. We are familiar, as we've gone through in the past, that, that the Scriptures talk about the three tenses of salvation. And the three tenses of salvation are that at the cross we are saved from the penalty of sin. This is uh, spiritual death. We're born spiritually dead. And at the instant of faith alone in Christ alone, you're spiritually alive. You are regenerate. From that point on, you go through the process of experiential or progressive sanctification And we are being saved or delivered from the power of sin. Saved from the power of sin. We still have a sin nature. We still sin. And we are learning to uh, put to death the deeds of the flesh, as Paul says in Romans chapter 6, so that we, in the process of our spiritual maturity. And then when we die and we're absent from the body and we're face to face with the Lord, we are saved from the presence of I mean, yes, saved from the presence of sin. Now, this is, these represent the three tenses of salvation. Past, present, and future. And in several of the... What's the matter? Oh. Thanks. Okay. In several... Of the New Testament books, for example, in Romans, we've studied this in Hebrews, it's also true in James, the word saved, sozo, and its derivative, soterion for salvation, other forms of the verb, the noun, don't refer to salvation here. This is how we use it in American Christian idiom. Are you saved? And what we mean by that is, are you going to go to heaven? Have you trusted Christ as your Savior? But in many of the New Testament books, the focus is on the present outworking of the reality of justification, which is phase one. It is this process, being saved from the power of sin on a day-to-day basis. And that's the way James uses the word in the epistle of James. In fact, we see this very clearly because in uh, just a few verses earlier, in verse 18 we read, Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we may be a kind of firstfruits of his creatures. That bringing forth by the word of truth is a reference to salvation justification that we have talked about when a person puts his faith alone in Jesus Christ. When an individual recognizes that Jesus Christ died on the cross for his sins, at that instant he receives the imputation of Christ's righteousness 
God the Father declares you just, that is the doctrine of justification by faith alone, and you are simultaneously regenerated so that you become a new creature in Christ and you have eternal life. But it is several verses later, when in verse 21, when James begins to talk about the spiritual life itself, how do you grow? And he uses the term saving the life or delivering the life, that is, from sin. So the focus of James, 20, James 1.21 is how the believer grows. And to begin with, there has to be this removal of, of sin. Now, what exactly does that mean? How do we do that? Well, before I answer that question, let's look at one other passage. And that is 1 Peter 2, verse 1. So you can just turn over a couple of pages to 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 1. And 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, have the same grammatical structure in the Greek. So they talk about that, and they use that participle of antecedent circumstances in order to stress what must be done before the command can be fulfilled. And so we have, in fact, we have the same word used. Therefore, laying aside is the verb apatithemi. It means to remove something, to take something off, to set it completely aside. And there we have a list of different sins that are representative. It's certainly not an, an inclusive list. Laying aside all malice, that is mental attitude sins related to hatred, envy, vengeance, vindictiveness, all deceit, that is anything related to lying or deception, hypocrisy, envy, all of these are mental attitude sins, and mental attitude sins are among the most destructive of sins, and then a, the sins, uh, sins of the tongue, all evil speaking, whether it's lying or slander or gossip, whatever it might be, the sins of the tongue, all of these things, uh, shut down the ministry of God the Holy Spirit. They grieve and quench the Holy Spirit. And then we have the positive command in verse 2. As newborn babes, we are to desire the pure milk of the Word. And the command is the word desire. We are to desire the milk of the Word like a newborn babe. The verb there is epipatheo, and it means to yearn for something to long for something, to hunger for something. I think most of us have heard an infant that gets hungry, makes its will known. He screams for food, cries out for food, and you hear that awful noise as that baby starts wailing for someone to stick something in his mouth because he's hungry, doesn't know any other way to express himself. And this is the image that the Apostle Peter uses in this verse is that we as newborn believers are to scream out, cry out, demand to be fed. Now it's interesting what happens when you don't get fed. I don't know how many of you have ever gone through any kind of fast. I went through a uh, imposed fast. A number of years ago, I was on one of these uh, outward bound type of programs that Wheaton College had. It was a uh, the last elective I had to fulfill for my uh, THM, and I had a chance. I had to take this Christian education elective, and I wasn't real thrilled about any of the Christian education courses at Dallas. And I didn't like the, you know, the, the gimmicky things that Christian ed guys normally got into, but I found out that Wheaton College had a graduate program and they had this two-week 
wilderness learning seminar that was a backpacking and camping trip that was part of their Christian ed program. And I could get those hours transferred back to Dallas to fulfill my Christian ed credit. And I thought, what a great way to finish a course. I get to go out on a kind of an outward... I was really into that kind of thing when I was younger, a lot of rock climbing and whitewater canoeing and rafting. And so I went on this two-week trip. And it was uh, a great trip, except I came down with a staph infection, 103 fever halfway through, and so they stuck me out in a tent in the middle of nowhere and said, you know, get over it and we'll come back for you in three or four days and left me with about a you know, handful of food about that big, and, and that was it. Took me to the hospital first. I got a shot of antibiotics, and then they disappeared. Showed up three days later, picked me up, and we continued with the trip. Well, I got up into the... Uh, upper uh, Michigan Peninsula, and we ended the trip on the shore of Lake Superior. Now, the mean average—I mean, the mean temperature of the water in Lake Superior is 33 degrees. 32 degrees is freezing, so the water t- temperature there is so cold that it kills any bacteria. You can just drink the water right out of Lake Superior without worry of getting any bacterial infections or anything. So, as we got to the shore of Lake Superior, they just isolated everybody, strung us out all along the shore, about 100 yards or so apart from each other, and we were to have a three-day solo. And we were to fast during that solo, and I'm thinking, you know, I've never fasted. I was about 27, and I really didn't like to go more than two or three hours without food. And I certainly wasn't looking forward to that, and I had been anticipating this all along, figuring out how I was going to squirrel away some food so that I could could, uh, make it without having to really fast for three days. And then we were told that there were a lot of bears in the area, and they could really sniff out the food, so it was really against our better interest to have anything in our position that even had touched food, because the bears would smell that and they would come after us. And and indeed, during the, the three days we were on the shore of Lake Superior, they attacked the home, the, the home base where the, the leaders were and just completely demolished four or five uh, $150 backpacks trying to get to the food that was in there. So we had to spend three days right there on the shore. We had plenty of water but no food. And what I discovered was when you've gone without food for about 36 to 48 hours, somewhere right in there, your appetite goes away. It just, it just disappears. And you're not hungry anymore. And see, people often wonder, well, how could the Lord fast for 40 days and 40 nights? I mean, that's a long time. You have other people like Moses who fasted for 40 days and 40 nights. And people think that somehow Jesus did that. Well, he had. He was God. Of course he could go 40 days without food. No, in your humanity, you can do that because your appetite will go away after about a day and a half. But the way God has made us, as you get close to that 40-day mark, when you get down to about day 36, 37, or 38, your appetite comes back with a bang because now it's going to get serious. If you go much beyond 40 days, it can start becoming life-threatening. So I experienced some of that during that time that after about a day and a half, I didn't have any appetite. See, I think this is what happens with a lot of people who get saved is nobody feeds them. They don't get any teaching from the Word. They just get this pablum that's real typical. And so after a short amount of time, their appetite goes away. Same thing that happens in the physical realm, I think, happens in the spiritual realm. And people just quit 
they, they, they go around, they go from church to church to church. Some of you have done this. You go from church to church to church to church. Nobody's teaching anything, so you just think, well, that's all there is. It's just this nonsense that goes on. And so, well, I'm supposed to go to church. So you go and you get this pablum and this dog and pony show and, and the emotion. And you just say, well, that's what there is. And you don't really realize how much meat there is in the Word and how much depth there is to the Word. That's what this passage is talking about. We're supposed to be like babies demanding of pastors to feed us. A pastor is like a chef. He needs to uh, prepare a meal for everybody from the infants to the mature because this is how we grow. That's the thrust of the passage. As newborn babes desire the pure milk of the Word that you may grow thereby. You don't grow from singing hymns. You don't grow from praise and worship. You don't grow from counseling. You don't grow from just going to Sunday school and sitting around and saying, oh, what did this passage mean to you? You grow because somebody has dedicated their life to studying the Word so that they can teach and communicate the principles of God's Word so that you as a believer can grow and mature in the Christian life. But there's a precondition, and that's what we saw in verse 1 of 1 Peter 2, as well as James 1.21. And that is this principle of taking off and removing sin. Well, the Bible uses another imagery, another image for communicating that, and that's the image of cleansing. The image of cleansing. And actually, there's two types of cleansing in the Christian life. There's cleansing that occurs at salvation related to all pre-salvation sin. And there's another cleansing that takes place after salvation on a regular, ongoing manner as a result of confession of sin. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Let's understand the importance of cleansing. I want to take you back to a well-known passage in the Gospel of John. John chapter 13. In fact, it ties in with the Lord's table because this took place the night before Jesus went to the cross when the disciples gather together in the upper room for the Lord's table. And as the disciples came into the upper room, the Lord Jesus Christ had taken his outer garment off and he had wrapped it around his waist so it wouldn't get in his way. And he brought a basin out. And as the disciples came into the room, he knelt down and he washed their feet. And this was... Standard practice of a host as guests came into the home to celebrate the Passover meal. But this was the Lord who was doing this, and it really bothered uh, the disciples that he was getting down and washing their feet. And when he came to Peter, it was just too much for Peter. And in verse 6 we read that Peter said to him, Lord, are you washing my feet? You're not supposed to let me wash your feet. Peter just could not accept the fact that here was the one who he recognized as the Messiah back in Matthew 18, that that this was the Lord of the universe, the Son of God, washing his feet. And Jesus said to him in verse 7, What I am doing you do not understand now, but you will know after this. In other words, I'm doing something that has a, a benefit. I'm teaching a doctrine through symbolism here. And you may not understand all of its ramifications right now, but you will eventually. And Peter said to him, Lord, you never shall wash my feet. And here, Peter says, you'll never wash my feet. And then the Lord says, says to, and, and, and they use an interesting Greek word here. It's this word, nipto. N-I-P-T-O. Now, I'm going to 
leave that up there for just a minute. Jesus said to him in response, If I do not wash you, you have no part with me. And so Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Don't just wash my feet. Wash my whole body. Give me a bath. And Jesus then said to him, Okay, he who is bathed needs only to wash his feet. And when he uses the word bathed here, he uses a different Greek verb. He uses this verb, luo, L-U-O-O. Nipto means to wash something partially, like your hands or just your feet, whereas luo has the idea of taking a a complete bath, just washing from, from head to toe. What Jesus is pointing out here to Peter is that when you got saved, you got washed from head to toe. That is salvation from or cleansing from your pre-salvation sins. But now you need to have an ongoing partial washing. And that is just of your feet. And this is indicated by the word uh, nipto. And this, and he says to him in verse 10, he who is bathed, luo, he who has been washed from head to toe, that is the person who is completely cleansed at salvation, needs only to wash his feet, that is nipto, but is completely clean, clean, and this is the Greek word katharizo, which means to be cleansed or purified. Now these words are important. And they have a heritage in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, when the high priest was inaugurated into his role, he was bathed from head to toe. And in the Septuagint translation, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Jews understood what the nuances were. There was only one word for bathing or washing in Hebrew, the the verb rachatz. But when the Jews translated the Old Testament, the Hebrew, into Greek, they made a distinction between the different kinds of washings related to the high priest. So when the high priest was inaugurated, he took a bath from head to toe, and this was translated in the Old Testament with the uh, verb luo, indicating a complete bath. But from that point on, the high priest never took a complete ritual bath. As he entered into the tabernacle or the temple, he came to the laver, and he would wash his hands and wash his feet. And this was symbolic of the fact that he needed to be partially cleansed before he could go into the presence of God. He was completely cleansed at his inauguration. So picture the fact that Every believer is completely cleansed of sin at the instant of salvation. But we do things and we go places that we shouldn't. We think things and act ways in which we shouldn't. We commit sin. And so there needs to be partial cleansing on an ongoing basis if we're going to maintain our relationship with God. This is why Jesus said to Peter, If you don't let me wash you, nipto, continually cleanse you, then you will have no part with me. And the word part doesn't mean a role or a place uh, in, in ministry in your life. It's the Greek word meros, which indicates a portion of an inheritance. It was a technical word used in a legal document, such as a will, to indicate the portion or the share of the inheritance that the heir would receive. The same word used 
in the story of the prodigal son that when the uh, younger son wanted his inheritance, he asked for his portion, his meros. And so what Jesus is saying to Peter is that there won't be any cleansing in your life, and therefore you won't have any, uh, any production that has eternal value, and there won't be an inheritance for you if you don't let me cleanse you on a regular basis. So the key word here is cleansing. That's the important word. You see, this, this, that's the idea behind James 1.21 and behind 1 Peter 2.1, is the believer has to be cleansed of sin. And so that word is picked up in 1 John 1.9. 1 John 1.9 is the key promise, the most clear statement of this truth in the New Testament, but as I pointed out, it's not the only statement of this truth. The key word in 1 John 1.9 is not the word confession. That's the word a lot of people hone in on. The key word is cleansing. This is the word that you find from Genesis all the way through Revelation, is there needs to be a cleansing of sin at salvation, which is what happens when we're justified and we're saved from the penalty of sin. But there needs to be an ongoing post-salvation cleansing that takes place throughout our Christian life as we grow and mature in the Christian life. And so we're given the promise in 1 John 1, 9 that if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to what? Cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's the key word. We have to be cleansed from that sin and that excess of of. Uh, superfluity of naughtiness or excess of wickedness there in James 1.21. We have to be cleansed of the malice and the gossip and the mental attitude sins and the overt sins mentioned in 1 Peter 2.1. And we do that by simply admitting the sins that we commit according to 1 John 1.9. The word there is homologeo, which simply means to admit or acknowledge. Etymology Etymology of the word, sometimes you find people say it means to say the same thing as. But that's not what it means in terms of usage. It was a legal courtroom word. It meant simply to admit or acknowledge that you've done something wrong. You've breached the law. You've broken uh, an ordinance. You're no longer uh, innocent. You are now legally guilty. And so the solution is to admit guilt. And so this is done in silent prayer. We just tell God, I've done this. I've had mental attitude sins of, of envy. I've had mental attitude sins of lust. I've, you know, I've gossiped. I've maligned. I've slandered. Whatever it may be, we just say, Father, I did this. And instantly we are forgiven. It's not a matter of remorse. It's not a matter of feeling sorry for your sins. Remember, you may commit some sin you're sorry for, but that's only because you shocked yourself and you're afraid of divine discipline. And so you beg and plead God, and we've all done this, and you say, you know, Lord, if you just don't lower the boom this time, I won't do it anymore. And God has a great sense of humor and grace, and he sort of chuckles, and he says, well, I know, but you're going to do it 15,732 more times, so don't try to convince me you're not. Just admit the sin. And the promise of 1 John 1, 9 is, if you admit the sin, I will forgive you and cleanse you from all unrighteousness, even the sins that you haven't already committed. And at that instant, we are restored to fellowship with God. The sanctifying ministry of God, the Holy Spirit, resumes in our life, 
And he begins again to use the word of God, the implanted word, to save our souls. That is, to uh, save us from the ongoing power of sin in our life, to produce spiritual growth through the word of God so that we can uh, grow and mature as believers. That's the starting point. And we have to understand that once you're saved, that doesn't mean you're perfect. It just means you're have an eternal destiny in heaven now, but now you have to deal with ongoing sin in the life. And so we have a grace-based solution, and that is to simply admit or acknowledge our sins. We're forgiven, restored to fellowship so that we can move forward. And that's the starting point. Now, we all know that when you're a young believer, you, you just go in and out of fellowship. You confess your sin, then you sin again, and everybody goes through that. But the, as you grow and as you mature, that uh, bouncing back and forth thing just sort of slows down and it's not as significant. You spend more and more time in fellowship, walking with the Lord, walking by means of the Spirit. And that's the next thing we need to address as we go forward in our understanding of what do we do after salvation, is we have to... First of all, admit our sins so that we can be in fellowship and be in right relationship to the Holy Spirit. But then we have to learn to walk by means of the Spirit. And we'll get into that next time with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we do thank you for this opportunity to study your word. We thank you for your grace that our salvation, indeed everything in our life, is based on your grace. It's not based on who we are and what we do. It's based on who you are and what Jesus Christ did on the cross. On the cross, Jesus Christ paid the penalty for our sins. He died in our place so that we can have salvation. Scripture says there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. The salvation is simple. It is simply believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Father, we pray that you would challenge us with the things that we studied this evening. Make them clear to us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.